to uh, week two of our uh, series around 1 Corinthians 13, a good kind of different. Uh, the idea of this was uh, to really unpack over quite a number of weeks the difficulties that the Corinthian church was facing because we realised there was just a lot of richness uh, in there because uh, their struggles were not unique to them. In fact, down through time, we all struggle with the similar things. So it's going to be a bit of a wild ride. I thought Luke did a great job last week of unpacking the precarious position that the Corinthian believers found themselves in. It was a wild old world. Um, we can often bemoan our modern world with all sorts of suffering and sadness, injustice and immorality that's rife in our society. But if you wind yourself back to the first century in Corinth, um, with its violence, its poverty and the very sexualized nature um, of its society, uh, it, it really makes you realise that we're not experiencing any, anything that's unique in human history. In fact, maybe our time looks a little mild in some ways in comparison to the things of the past. And so we think that there's real richness there for us to pull out of this. Um, over the following weeks, we're going to, as we go through the book of Corinthians, we're going to be looking at sex scandals. Uh, there's going to be instructions about why some people should be removed from the fellowship of the church dealing with um, believers um, in court uh, with lawsuits against each other, all sorts of marriage issues, controversies about religious freedom, issues of modesty, um, how to do communion pro properly, um, how do you balance the gifts of the Holy Spirit? You know, how, how are those um, supernatural gifts managed well in the life of the church and, and the ironing out of some doctrinal hot points? But today we start right in chapter one with Paul's first and most pressing issue was about disunity uh, in the church, about divisions in the church. How could they be a good kind of different uh, in the face of division? How can we be um, a good kind of different in the face of the divisions that we face in our lives and in our church life? We had a great time with our life group this week, just going back over some of those early things that uh, Luke pointed out. And I just wanted to start there because I thought they were so encouraging. Uh, I hope you got to unpack them too. Really encourage you to connect with a small group, whether it's a team serving uh, or whether it's a, a group that gather around the Bible each week and just try to build each other up in, in your faith. But um, as, as Luke pointed out, uh, Paul starts this letter by sort of speaking over the Corinthian church how God saw them. Get a load of this. This is how God sees the Corinthian church. You are saints. You are sanctified. You are clean. You are recipients of God's grace. You are enriched by Christ in everything and particularly enriched in speech and in knowledge. You're not lacking any spiritual gift that you need. You are being strengthened right now and you'll be strengthened until the end. You are in constant fellowship with Jesus. Paul's writing here in the language of faith. He's seeing what they really are and he's calling that into being. This is Paul speaking out of an assurance of things hoped for. Paul, with his human eyes, is seeing a church beset with problems and in faith he's telling them who they really are. That's who we really are. We're saints, we're sanctified, we're recipients of God's grace, we're enriched by Christ. We're not lacking spiritual gifts. We're being strengthened now and we're in constant fellowship with Jesus. And uh, if we can keep remembering these things and it pulls us forward to what we're supposed to be. So 
This is the language of faith and it's about to be applied into the area of disunity. Let me read from verse 10 of chapter 1 for you. Now I urge you brothers in the same in the name, sorry, I urge you brothers in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree in what you say that there be no divisions among you and that you be united with the same understanding and the same conviction. For it has been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there's rivalry among you. What I'm saying is this. Each of you says, I'm with Paul, or I'm with Apollos, or I'm with Cephas, or I'm with Christ. Is Christ divided? Was it Paul who was crucified for you? Or were you baptised in Paul's name? And so we get this we get this picture developing that different leaders have come through the church and people have got their favourites and they're, they're sort of rallying around and it's causing division. In chapter 3, we get a little bit more of a window into the nature of the controversy. Let me read to you from verse 1 of chapter 3. Brothers and sisters, I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you're still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere humans? And so we get a little bit of a better idea of the type of division through those, those passages put together. Let's summarise some of the key words. There's rivalry, and the second bit it's talked about as a jealousy. Uh, it defines it as quarrels that are going on. Other versions will use a word like strife. Paul cuts to the chase and says, in behind all of this is because you're thinking about this in a worldly way, and it's characterised by them saying, I follow, I follow this person, I follow that person. So first up, let's talk about division. Um, we felt that it was good for me to try and deal with the division um, because for the first four chapters, it's sort of an undercurrent. So I'm going to sort of try and uh, give some thoughts about division at the front end of this today so that the uh, other guys who preach over the, the chapters in the, in the following weeks can more just focus on the, on the clarity of where that takes Paul and his thinking about particular issues. Um, he starts off, I urge you into unity in verse 10, for it's been reported to me about you, my brothers, by members of Chloe's household, that there's rivalry amongst you. Let's think about the world for a moment. Uh, we live in a world that's messed up, don't we? Um, divisions are all around us. Uh, we see this, the messiness that's caused by the polarised aligning with different leaders and views. I think that's been so evident in these last few years, particularly in our broader culture. So there could be stuff in this that's helpful for us. Um, if you're anything like me, you're, I'm certainly sick of the polarisations in our political culture. We see, we, surely we see the need to be better at accepting diversity and diverse opinions without the devastating divisions that can come with this. I can love you and I can treat you with dignity even though I don't agree with you. That's got to be our heart. And the church is not immune from this, from this polarising around uh, personalities either. We live in a time where information is very free and we can, we can plug into resources from all around the world, teachings and ministries through the internet. And, uh, and this can cause differences of opinions and different views. And so we need to talk about how we deal with the divisions that we face. And secondly, as this chapter goes on, as Paul confronts the disunity, he then springs into the centrality um, of 
Christ. And so I want to unpack a few of those things because the gospel uh, is the answer. So as we jump into it, let's pray together. I'd, I'd really like to pray uh, that there'd be a gem here for you today, but also that if there's, if there's hurt that you're carrying from previous divisions in the church, that in a way you can just choose to let go of that today. So may there be some wisdom, may there also be some healing. Let's pray together. Father, thanks for your word. Thanks that it's timeless. Lord, thanks that we can plug into the things that people said a long time ago, and yet it's still so relevant to today. Lord, we invite your Holy Spirit to teach us, just to allow us to go away with just one thing that we can act that uh, puts a smile on your face. Lord, for those of us that are still reeling from hurts of the past, Lord, we ask that you would heal us. Lord, we forgive those that have hurt us in the name of Jesus. We ask that you just give us a different perspective and allow us to walk free completely. Amen. Hey, we shouldn't, be, um, we shouldn't be surprised by conflict and division in the church. We shouldn't be surprised uh, because God's actually given the church the ministry of reconciliation. We, we can't reconcile people if there's not differences. It, it just comes with the territory. The church is a very uh, broad group of people, isn't it? Um, the church is made up of people from all different backgrounds. The church is made up to, to people from uh, different cultures, different languages, different education, different experiences. And so it's, it's inevitable that there's going to be a level of tension uh, in church. And I think God's really interested in the way that we deal with that. But today, the tension seems to be about rivalry. If we think about rivalry, it's about putting yourself first, isn't it? Uh, or putting your idea first, or putting your man first, putting your person ahead of the other. So fundamentally, rivalry uh, is selfish. It's not going to pass the love test. When, in chapter 3, he comes back to these uh, rivalries, uh, he calls the, the, the Corinth church worldly, and they're acting as mere humans. They're only seeing things from a human perspective, not a heavenly or spiritual one. He says in verse 3, You're still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarrelling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not acting as mere humans? They've got to lift their eyes to something higher. Undoubtedly, the tone in this letter is Paul's concerns that the divisions are actually stopping the church from who it is supposed to be. In verse 17 of chapter 1, he reflects on how God has called him to come and preach the gospel, that they could become a part of this, this great story of God's kingdom growing in the world around them. And by inference, they're supposed to preach the gospel to others. And the whole tone is that this disunity is taking them away from the very things that they're called to do. In chapter 1, he begins by reprimanding their disunity through the lens of Christ's crucifixion embodied through the act of baptism. And in chapter 3, he really tries to help them see that they're all on the same team. So those are going to be my two key ideas here around baptism. Let's start with baptism. Baptism is an identification with Christ. Paul wants to get this at the front end. You've become a follower of Christ. You've not become a follower of me or Apollos or anybody else. He points people back to Jesus. We are on the same team. Let's read it together from verse 13. Is Christ divided? Was I, Paul, crucified for you? Were you baptised in the name of Paul? I thank God that I did not baptise any of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one can say that they were baptised in my name. 
Yes, I also baptised the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I don't remember if I baptised anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptise, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So he's focused on Christ. <laughs> Just as an aside here, I love the humanness of this passage of Scripture where he says, I didn't, I didn't baptise anybody except these couple of guys. And oh, maybe that one and maybe there are others. The church would go on to formally agree that this letter was a critical authority from, of God to us as his people and his church. Paul was inspired by God to write it and it should be preserved between the covers of our Bible, our greatest authority for matters of faith and life. And yet it's such a human, uh, it, there's such humanity in it as well. God operating through the normal processes of people and we see God's hand at work. So Paul puts Jesus at the centre here. You were baptised into Jesus. Baptism is an identification that we make with Jesus' crucifixion. In a sense with baptism we say Jesus Jesus, you did that for me. It's an outward symbol of an inward reality. Jesus died for me, and now through his death, eternal life comes into me. In our divisions, we constantly need to be aware and mindful of the tremendous unity and common faith that we have with our brothers and sisters. And we need to keep that in our mind as it frames up disagreements. We need to keep Jesus in our focus. He's interested in the way we conduct ourselves in our disagreements. We need to keep Jesus the focus. He's actually interested in the way that we conduct ourselves. You know, I think maybe Jesus is actually more interested at times in the way we conduct ourselves when we're under pressure or in disunity with our brother and sister than he is about the actual issue that we are in disunity about. I think the uh, great uh, philosopher, Christian philosopher, uh, C.S. Lewis, has got some helpful things for us here. He was wonderfully converted to Christ in adulthood. And by his own analysis, he realised that in his early 30s, he was in danger of becoming, how would you imagine saying this about yourself, a hardened bigot shouting everyone down until he had no friends left. A hardened bigot shouting everyone down until he had no friends you have no idea, he confessed to a friend once, how much of my time I spend just hating people whom I disagree with. But C.S. Lewis, let Jesus change him. Over the next 30 years, I think C.S. Lewis really does become the poster child for what we might call the art of disagreement. He would say of himself, my own eyes are not enough for me. My own eyes are not enough for me. What does he mean by that? He means that it's helpful for him to look through the eyes of somebody that he disagrees with. It helps to shape his own thinking, to solidify it, to you know, maybe have him change his opinion. He said these three things. We need to define the importance of the disagreement that's under dispute. You know, sometimes we end up arguing about quite trivial things. And so if we acknowledge that the thing itself is not that important, it's going to change the tone. We need to remember the comparative importance of what unifies us. You know, if this is my brother or sister in Christ, um, that you know, we share such a, a, a great central thing. Once we've done those things, how important is this? How much are we unified? Then try to settle the, the disagreement. If we will approach it that way, we're certainly going to be much better at listening. We're certainly going to be much better at actively listening. We'll ask the right questions. We'll do the right type of listening. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis modelled that the best way to have a constructive, constructive disagreement is first to try your best to find the best reasons to agree with the other person's point of view rather than your own point of view. Did you get the idea of that? So when you're in a disagreement, actually first of all try to let your mind go to what are the very best reasons why this person's right rather than me. By doing that, we find common ground with somebody. It builds respect and it's a safe environment. It's going to mean that we are asking questions. We're actively listening. We're, we're backing up a question with a question to understand what people are saying. And of course, as I said, the church is a, the, the church is a broad community. We come from all different places. And so we have to accept that there, there's going to have to be um, diversity without division. We can disagree without being disagreeable. This is what C.S. Lewis uh, called the art of disagreement. I've been doing this Christian faith for quite a while now. I came to faith about uh, around the, the age of 18 and I've been through quite a few divisions and <laughs> in fact I've caused a fair few of them. Um, as I get ready to complete my 39th time around the sun, um, since I gave my life to the sun, I look back at myself and I see a younger man who is much more sure of himself than he should have been and uh, much, tending much more to look to see the differences between my views and somebody else's rather than the similarities. And I was all too prone um, to not thinking of others as more important than myself. It's right to know what we think. It's good to have our views. It's, it's good to seek to have a view and a well thought view through views. And often our views are shaped by leaders that we respect and our views come to imitate their views. And that's all good, but we need to hold these things lightly. Most things are not actually critical. And there are many things in this world that we can get wound up about that actually don't even have a clear answer. There are things that we can get wound up that don't have a clear answer. They're always going to be a judgment call and we can end up trying to pull people over to our way of seeing stuff that actually is ambiguous. And maybe God made the world that way because he wants, to, he wants to see us act well, act with love and faith in areas of ambiguity. Ambiguity creates an environment where we have to bridge our knowledge gap with faith and we have to bridge our relational gap with love. Love and faith are both really important to God. So I think God has put us in a world with a level of ambiguity because love and faith are important. The other thing that we need to be sober about is that every leader, every teacher gets things wrong. God organised it that way. God organised it so that every teacher is going to get some things wrong because he doesn't want us to trust in and follow teachers. He wants us to trust in and follow Jesus. Not our pastor, not our favourite politician, not our glamorous internet preacher. I once said, it's what I learned after I knew it all that's really made the difference. You know, we have to be good at humbling ourselves. That's when I think we begin to learn. So what are some things that I've learned about divisions of church? Well, I've learned if I'm not motivated by love, I should back off. If I'm not motivated by love, if I haven't got a loving heart towards this opponent, then I need to back off. I need to get my heart right before I get into the fight. <laughs> get your heart right first. I think it's carried quite well in Philippians chapter 2 where it says, In humility, consider others better than yourselves. If I'm going to consider some, an other as better than myself, then that probably 
it, it, it changes the way I think about their opinion. If I consider them better, then I should, I should have a default setting to considering their opinion as more important than myself. If I consider others as more important or better than myself, then this will impact the way that I listen. It'll impact the way I question and it will impact the way that I serve others. And importantly, it will impact the demeanour with which I treat them at a point of tension. It will probably make them more able to listen to me. Somebody once said, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. That's really important for our divisions. Finally, in describing and speaking into this division, in chapter 3, Paul implores them to see that God is at work through the different people. Different people bring different things to the table. He says, you know, so what is Apollos and what is Paul? We're only servants. You know, one person plants a seed, another waters the seed. One person builds a foundation and others build on top of it. We are just co-workers in God's service. We're all part of the same team. And so he encourages them in the context of division to see that they're all on the same team. Uh, to you know, so if we sum those two things up, let the division chase them back to Jesus, you know, with all the images around the whole baptism. But secondly, to just see that different people come with different emphases uh, and we're all on the same team if we're focused on Jesus and what He is doing, all the better. So, finally, let's finish the chapter. Let's talk about Jesus. There's a lot to talk about, as our abiding life friends would say. As Paul addresses their uh, divisions, um, he focuses on how God called him to come to Corinth to preach the gospel. We read that a little bit before uh, in verse 17. And he emphasizes the simple and craziness of the gospel message. It really only makes sense to the people that God opens their eyes to it. And then he goes on to lay a foundation of what true faith is about. It's simple, it's a bit crazy, and it's always humbling. Verse 18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. And then from verse 21, For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs and Greeks look for wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So he talks about Jesus at the centre being a stumbling block for some and foolishness for others. And I wonder if we just stop and we just pause and we think about those ideas for a moment. For the Jewish people, Jesus was a stumbling block. They'd had in their mind that a great Messiah was going to come and overturn. He was going to the, the rule of the Romans. He was a powerful Messiah. But Jesus identified not only as Messiah, but as suffering servant. Uh, he would say things to them like, destroy this temple and I'll raise it up in three days. And they had no idea what he was talking to them about. But the idea for a Jewish person that this man Jesus that they had crucified was actually the Messiah. We missed the Messiah. We killed him. It's not all about Jesus. It's not all about Israel. It's all about Jesus. These were very humbling ideas. These were a stumbling block to them. And for the Gentile people growing up in the Greco-Roman world, 
the message sounded foolish. They believed in multitudes of gods. These gods were powerful and constantly at war. The stronger ones winning and that was why they'd managed to conquer the world. Opposition was crushed um, and when you were dead, you were dead. Uh, they prized themselves on knowledge um, and what we might see as, uh, we might now see as pre-science science. Um, so they were always seeking wisdom and knowledge and the message of the gospel of this man, this you know, this poor man uh, from a back block who was crucified uh, and rose from the dead was just sounded a crazy idea. It was a story which for them invited people to mock. We certainly see that in Acts 17 uh, when Paul gives a sermon to the philosophers in Athens. Most of them laughed at him. It seemed foolish, it seemed crazy, but some did listen. And uh, the story finishes with a few saying, we'd like to hear more. And that gospel message, that's, that crazy message, actually became the power of salvation to some of those people in Athens and what then went on to become what we now call the Greek Orthodox Church. The point is this, are you one of the few that the gospel message is the power of God to transform your life? I had, a, I had an unusual experience of coming home one night out of the blue and telling my family that I'd become a Christian. They were a bit bemused. And then over the next couple of years, as I began to understand what following Christ was and got myself involved in church and got myself involved in ministry and they saw friends coming through the door, um, they started to travel with me. Hopefully I was a good kind of different. Um, as, I've, uh, been, as I was preparing the message, I realised that it, within my own family, there was one who looked for wisdom and there was one who demanded signs. And so my dad was probably a little bit more like the Greco-Romans. Um, and as I started to investigate things, you know, in regard to God as our creator um, and trying to understand how he created the universe, I was giving my dad books to read and then I was reading stuff about Jesus and the resurrection and he would read those things as well. And then one night as he was seeking and having an open mind, uh, you know, but someone who was seeking knowledge, he said, my goodness, there really is a God. And, uh, and that was the start of his journey in faith. Um, my brother, on the other hand, uh, he wasn't particularly interested in any of that stuff, but after um, one particular event where I came home and shared with him what happened to me when I was uh, prayed for to receive the Holy Spirit and how I, how I had shaken and had quite a spiritual experience and then coming off the back of that, God had released me in the supernatural gift of tongues. And uh, my brother confessed a few weeks later, he said, um, when you told me about the Holy Spirit coming upon you, I thought to myself, yeah, you found something. And that was the thing that opened his heart. You know, so on the one hand, I've got you know, one of the precious people in my life who, was, who's, who were opened through things of wisdom and knowledge and one who was opened through uh, the, the supernatural. And I think, I think that's how God works in different people, different folks, different strokes. Um, let's continue to believe that our lives, as they bump up against other people is actually a good kind of different. People are watching us and uh, hopefully they're seeing something good. We should continue to pray for the people around us. All right, in the right way, the gospel requires us to switch our brain off and humble ourselves as a little child. But at another level, faith then stimulates and challenges us to the depth of our being and our thinking and stretches us in every way. But fundamentally, the gospel humbles us. God wants us to have faith. He wants us to trust in him. Uh, there comes that a heart moment when we realize that we are in him because he drew us to himself. When we first come to faith, our decision to follow him is our 
is obvious, but as we go on, we, we begin to realise that, no, he actually drew us, he brought us here, he softened our heart. Perhaps in eternity we'll look back on this little sojourn here on planet Earth and we'll see that the greatest miracle that God did was not healing the sick in a sense, it was actually, or moving mountains, it was actually humbling the human heart. And this is where chapter 1 finishes. Let me read to you from verse 28. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness, redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. It's a humbling thing to come to Christ. It requires a humble heart. I read this summary the other day. I thought it was beautiful. Luke's going to take us into a time of communion, but just as a thought as we do that. The cross announces the weaknesses and need of every person, and that means it excludes the boasting and the pride of the few. The cross says the talented the well-born, the well-educated, do not deserve special privileges. They are not more valuable than anyone else. The call of God comes to every person and the power of God is poured out on all who believe. So let's allow our conflicts chase to chase us back to Jesus and the simplicity of the cross. Uh, let's cherish every difficulty that we have with our brothers and sisters, knowing that conflicts are an opportunity to find life and to find good relationship. Communion celebrates the work of Jesus on the cross. It's also a celebration of the unity that we have, uh, the unity that everyone who trusts in him have. So enjoy. Thank you.